Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash Robinson to learn more. I grew up in a small town in Ohio. We had a large laboratory in the basement. And my brother John was a true scientist. So we had three or four rows of chemicals. I was parked on that bench when my brother John did serious chemistry, but then he went on to Yale and to Mexico and Colombia, came back with these incredible stories of eating psilocybin mushrooms. And during spring break, gave me a book called Altered States of Consciousness. And I love this book. I just voraciously read it. But my best friend, Ryan, he wanted to borrow it. So I said, well, you can borrow it, but please give it back to me soon. And so he borrowed it. And then I asked him about a week later, listen, my brother's going back to Yale. He needs his book back. And Ryan kept on avoiding the issue. And so after three or four times, I finally put my foot down and said, I need this book back. And then Ryan said, I can't give it to you. I go, why? He said, I can't give it to you because my father found it and burned it. I said, your father burned my brother's book? So I was like, oh, how do I tell my brother this, right? He was very upset. But I thought, wow, if Alder's states of consciousness disturbed Ryan's father so much that he felt compelled to burn it, then I think I'll study this subject more deeply. (laughs) (laughs) Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Labyrinths. That young boy was Paul Stamets, And he didn't just grow up to study psilocybin mushrooms, but went on to become one of the most notable mycologists in the world. Through his company, Fungi Perfecti, he has researched everything from how mycelial networks can create water filtration systems to developing natural mycopesticides. He holds dozens of patents, and he is also the author of many books, including Psilocybin Mushrooms of the World, Mycelium Running, and Growing Gourmet and Medicinal Mushrooms, a book recommended to us when we developed an interest in learning to cultivate mushrooms at home. A lot of people are growing mushrooms right now. I think that's one of the interesting things about COVID is increased people's hobbies at home. Hmm. And growing mushrooms takes you so deeply into biology of the earth and the interconnectedness of nature. I know of two kids who bought mushroom kits from me and now have their PhDs in mycology and are professors at universities. (laughs) What does it feel like to have that kind of impact on people? Well, I'm honored because I've always been attracted to that which is forbidden, strange science, weird things. You know, children are naturally rebellious against their parents, right? They're being told all the time what to do, what not to do. And so when they get into something that's weird, neglectic, it's kind of liberating for them, right? Because they're empowered. But now there's this multi-generational bridge between grandparents and grandchildren. And it's not a new bridge in a sense. Many elders in their 80s have told me their favorite memories is hunting mushrooms with their grandparents in Czechoslovakia or France or Italy. Or, and so that's one of their favorite memories in their life. And in fact, Leo DiCaprio is a friend of mine, but many people don't know that Ermelin, his mother is German, 
And Ermelin sent me a photograph of Leo when he was 10 years old collecting mushrooms in Germany. <laughs> How idyllic. <laughs> yeah. So that actually influenced Leo in his inspiration to be an eco-warrior advocating for the ecosystem. So, I mean, who, who would have thought? Instilling these ideas in children can have a lifelong benefit that reverberates throughout society. And that's what we need. We need thought leaders to step up to the plate. I mean, wasn't one of your first experiences out of prison going mushroom Actually, hunting? yes. I had an Italian professor at the university who, like, very, very shortly after I came home, he took me mushroom hunting. And I just remember how magical it felt to be walking on the forest floor in this peace and calmness after years of concrete. Mm. It's hard to describe even. It was surreal. I felt like I was almost bouncing on the moon. It was so great. <laughs> <laughs> that contrast is sometimes what we need in life because when you don't have those contrasts you can't see the forest for the trees sometimes yeah there's a mushroom renaissance sweeping the entire world right now and i think people are waking up that we are interconnected the metaphor of mycelium is not just a metaphor it's a reality we are collectively one being and understanding that i think all species have rights i think as citizens of this planet we have a duty to protect the rights of other citizens and that's why biodiversity, to me, is biosecurity. Uh, once we start losing biodiversity, we lose like rivets in an airplane. How many species will we lose before we have catastrophic failure? Mm -hmm. There could be up to 100,000 species of bacteria in a few grams of soil. And the mycelial networks can be miles in length. And they secrete antibiotics to prevent pathogens from consuming them. But they also secrete prebiotics hmm. to help bacteria collaborate. And they form this community relationship of cooperation. And then those cooperative bacteria produce antibacterial compounds to prevent the non-nice players from entering into their relationship. So these are giant mantles, and they're examples of the crosstalk of the biology of nature that's so complex and so absolutely essential. We are here today because of the evolutionary successes of our predecessors. We just didn't show up. Hmm. Mm -hmm. We are uh, the result of a very long lineage of evolutionary successes based on cooperation. One of the great lessons that I learned through my experiences on psilocybin and thinking about evolution, I think Darwin got some things right, but he got some things wrong. And maybe it's not Darwin's necessarily, this is truly reflective of just taking one little tidbit, but it's not the survival of the fittest. It's the survival of generosity to the commons from those who have a surplus to be mm. able to share it. When you share with your neighbors, they have a quote unquote debt of gratitude. They're gonna to wanna to help you. A neighbor's house burns down, a tree falls down, someone has a medical emergency. If you come to their help and their rescue, you've built a friend for life. Mm. Yeah. What's the monetary value on that? Good luck, you can't monetize that. But in a sense, in terms of ecological currency benefit, you banked a debt of gratitude that is impossible to put a money value on because you have heart and soul support. And I think heart and soul support really is what we need more now than anything else. We need the extension of generosity. Mm. And that's what I think the lesson of evolution is, especially at this time. Yeah. Speaking of evolution, can you unpack for us a little more how the fungus kingdom fits in with the rest of life on Earth in that evolutionary story stretching back eons? Well, I'll go back to the Big Bang. <laughs> <laughs> 
goes back even further than that, 13.8 billion years ago, the Big Bang, and 4.5 billion years ago, approximately, the Earth coalesced out of stardust. 3.8 billion years ago was the first sign of a living organism. It's called the last universal common ancestor. That uh, was a protobacterium. But the first evidence of a multicellular organism, and the archaeological record is still being explored, has been found in lava beds in South Africa 2.5 billion years ago, and it's mycelium. If you don't remember from high school biology, what we typically think of as a mushroom is just the temporary above-ground fruiting body of the organism, while below the soil is the mycelium, the mass of branching threads that can, in some species, span miles and miles. Mycelium is crucial to forest ecosystems as it breaks down organic matter in soil. And then mycelium is debatable. Was it from the shores of lakes, inland seas, or the ocean? But that tidal influence of water drying, water drying, at that interfaces are the margins where there's adaptation, right? Aqueous environment, aerobic environment. You have to build a skill set selectively to survive that flux. And then the fungi march on the land with algae. They pair it up to form lichens. And so lichens are actually fungi and plants together. Hmm. And then the land masses were colonized, but fungi gave birth to animals 650 million years ago. We are children of fungi. Wow. And just biologically, the best antibiotics we have against bacteria come from fungi, but we have very few good antibiotics against fungi because they're so closely related to ourselves. Under the microscope, a human cell and a fungal cell looks remarkably similar. Interesting. Fungi went the underground route of externally digesting its nutrients. And when our fungal ancestors started forming stomachs, encapsulating nutrients within a cellular sac, that was basically the divergence of fungi from animals. Hmm. And so our ancestors were fungi. And as animals then proliferated across the planet, the fungi pairing with plants created the food resources. They're the foundation of the food web. And they have a governing influence to protect biodiversity. Because biodiversity for the commons is essential for the progeny of fungi. If you cut down all the trees and you log it and you move it away from land, fungi don't have food to eat. Mm. If fungi can rot the wood and decompose it, then it gives all these nutrients to all these other members of the ecological community. And the humus layer gets thicker, water tables rise. Most people don't know that when mycelium decomposes straw or sawdust, about 20% becomes water. Hmm. Think of that. So they hydrate the environment. And with this water resources being available, then of course, plants thrive. And then mushrooms, when they form, they sporulate, and the spores become nuclei for raindrops. Cool. So mushrooms make their own microclimates. Wow. So the idea of looking at a mushroom as being perishable just for a few days, or even if our own lives being such short in the geologic time frame, fungi have taken this long view towards habitat sustainability. So I think they really are quite remarkable. And science is now quickly catching up to the importance of these fungal networks for sequestering carbon. The largest biological banks of carbon in the soil is mycelium, both living and dead. Hmm. When mycelium dies, it's about 85% carbon. Hmm. And when mycelium dies, it's just carbon sequestered. So the more decomposition you have, the more mycelium in the soil, the richer the carbon bank. 
the richer the carbon bank, the thicker the humus, the more life support it is. Hmm. And so when you start harvesting trees, you're taking away decomposable materials, you're robbing the carbon bank. And this is a really important message I can convey is to let wood rot. Hmm. Hmm. Celebrate decomposition. The idea that decomposition is bad is a very Elizabethan view towards nature. <laughs> of course, you get human interests in contrast to nature's intentions. So if you have a honey mushroom, which causes laminated root rot, it can knock down trees and it can be harmful to orchards. There are some parasitic fungi, but fungi have rights too. If you have a utilitarian interest in protecting a food crop, this is the dangerous dance that we get in with fungi, is looking at use of fungicides. And so hmm. there are really good strategies for sustainable agriculture using permaculture methods that builds up the host defense networks within the ecosystem that prevents these parasitic fungi from becoming dominant. Right. And oftentimes, habitats, when they're diseased, will spread diseases. Hmm. So keeping the habitat health together makes a really big difference and preventing zoonotic and botanical diseases. Diseases spread by animals, diseases spread by plants. Now, you came to this current understanding from a past, at one point, of being a logger. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a funny place to start to end up where you are now. Well, I was a young man, and I needed a job. And so a friend of mine up in Darrington, Washington, a logging town just below a huge volcano, Cano called White Horse Mountain. He said, why don't you come up? And I went, and I was a long-haired hippie, and they wouldn't hire me. <laughs> <laughs> they, said, they said, you have no chance of being hired. And I said, oh, yeah, we'll see. Because I knew the community, they were going out on these benders. These people were heavy drinkers. Some of them were heavy drug users. They live a hard life, really hard life. And I got my corks, my hard hat, my suspenders. You know, I'm totally ready. And I would show up at the shop at six o'clock every morning before the crew buses went out. And I'd show up every single day for 21 days in a row. And I just betted that someone's not gonna show up for work. And finally, this one guy was constantly late for work, drinking all night long. The crew said, we're short again, and this guy's here every single day. So they put me on the most dangerous crew they had. It's called a Skyline. And they tried to break me. <laughs> and I just kind of kept my mouth shut and laughed because I thought it was just great exercise, right? So hmm. the more they tried to break me, the stronger I became. And so I pulled the green chain in a summit timber lumber mill. And then I ran cut off cedar logs I pulled from a pond and I ran cut off in a shingle mill. Used a massive bandsaw, about eight feet in diameter. Crazy. But some of my best buddies then became loggers because when you're in the brush with them, your lives depend upon each other. Hmm. So I'm 21, and they wanted me to, to be the hooker, which is the top dog on the crew. And the yarder operator is 45. I'd make more money than him. And I was getting paid danger pay. That's why mm. I got paid more. We'd come out on the crew bus, and they'd always bring a case of beer to the ritual up there on Fridays. And we'd stop and collect chanterelles and mushrooms. And so I got really into mushrooms even before that. So I was self-taught. And after these three guys got killed, three of my crew guys got killed. Oh, wow. That oh, was wow. really really devastating. And then I sort of jumped ship. I said, I'm going back to college. So, but I have great respect for the School of Hard Knocks. And as I like to say, you know, who do I want in my lifeboat? Hmm. I'll take with the School of Hard Knocks experienced person any day in the week compared to an academic. There are some academics that have gone through the School of Hard Knocks. I'm one of them. 
But I believe in the yin-yang and that blend of skill sets are really important. When Paul Stamets was a teenager, before his logging days, he had a transformative experience with psilocybin, one he recounted on Joe Rogan's podcast. I had a congenital stuttering habit. I could not speak without And then one day, before I'd ever had psilocybin mushrooms, I bought a bag of them, and I went out for a walk in the woods in Ohio. And there was this beautiful oak tree that I used to climb the top of the, the very top of the tallest hill. So I went for a walk and I ate <laughs> the whole bag when I was walking. And then I started feeling the effects. And so it was great because I was climbing the tree and I was getting higher in the tree and higher in my brain. And I <laughs> climbed to the top of the tree and this beautiful landscape, but it was, it was these boiling black clouds on the horizon. I could hear the thunder and, you know, and, and then I'm getting higher and higher and the winds pick up and the tree started moving and I started getting vertical. And then the lightning started coming closer and it hit and I go, the atmosphere became liquid waves of this multidimensional geometrical patterns everywhere. It was amazing. I said, this is what I read about. My heart opened up. I felt one with all. And then it dawned on me, wait a second, Stamets, you're on the tallest tree on the tallest hill for miles in the middle of a lightning storm. This is not the best place to be. I could die up here. And I said, well, I don't die, Stamets. What's, what are your issues? Get something out of this experience. And I said, this stuttering habit is ridiculous. And so I said to myself, stop stuttering now. Stop stuttering now. I said that dozens, hundreds of times over and over and over. And, and then the next day, I was walking along on this path and a sidewalk, and there's a lady that I really liked a lot. And so for the first time, she walked towards me. She said, good morning, Paul. How are you? She was always so nice to me. And I was terrified because I'd embarrassed myself. And I looked at her straight in the eyes. I said, I'm doing fine. How are you? And I stopped stuttering in one day. Hey, listeners. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast can only exist thanks to listener support. So please consider becoming a patron. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. The power of that first psilocybin experience stayed with Stamets. And by the time he reached the University of Washington after his stint as a logger, it informed his budding career as a mycologist. I spent a lot of time at the University of Washington Science Library in the basement in the 1970s. I met Dr. Daniel Stuntz. I met some of the premier researchers in the, in the world. So I got into that very deeply. I wrote my first book when I was 19 years of age. Uh, I published it when I was 21, Philosophy of Mushrooms and Their Allies. I have seven books out now. I became very interested in psilocybin mushrooms, and then a professor, Dr. Michael Bug at the Evergreen State College, took me under his wing, and then we cooperatively engaged in research. We got a Drug Enforcement Administration license. I went on to publish four new species in the genus Psilocybe. There's about 116 known psilocybin active species in the world and a genus that contains a little over 200. So these psilocybin mushrooms are widely dispersed in different ecosystems. And I became an expert on the taxonomy identification of psilocybin mushrooms, wrote taxonomic keys and published papers. While Paul was starting that pioneering research, the counterculture revolution was happening simultaneously. The surge of interest in the 1970s on the West Coast in particular 
led by Terrence and Dennis McKenna, Andy Weil. And it sort of came out of Harvard and Yale. And Dr. Richard Schultes and R. Gordon Valentino Wasson discovered, rediscovered, they didn't discover anything. I mean, Maria Sabina and the Mazatecs get all the credit here for that relationship. But it swept the colleges in particular. And then it had its heyday in the 70s and early 80s. Stamets found himself situated in the perfect place to bring these different worlds together. And then sponsored for about 30 years conferences, the Mycomedia conferences starting in 1976. And then we had the Great Millennium Mushroom Conference at Brighton Bush Hot Springs because I knew the Merry Pranksters and the Grateful mm-hmm. Dead community. And I knew Sasha Shulgin, Albert Hofmann, and all these other scientists. And I realized I was sort of the Venn intersection between these two different groups. So I brought them together. And that conference is still legendary in so many ways. <laughs> We had a costume ball. Ooh. It's the only time I've had psilocybin mushrooms in a group session of 130 people. Wow. Oh, wow. What was your costume? I'm a bear. Cool. I don't even have to wear a costume. I kind of look like a bear. <laughs> <laughs> How fun. But for Stamets, psilocybin broadened his sense of community far beyond his human social world of fellow psychonauts and researchers. We live in a, such a thin slice of reality. And what psilocybin showed me is the unanimity of our being. And hearing all the voices of nature calling to us saying, don't you see, you have ascended to be the primary species of influence on this planet and your influence is so destructive. And interestingly, the psilocybin mushrooms, the majority of them on wood, follow the trails of humans. Hmm. So when you chip wood and chop wood, you're doing construction, this is where these psilocybin mushrooms show up the next year. It's almost like they're following us to call to us. But from that experience, I felt my calling to be a micro-warrior standing up for the planet. Most of this mini-series, we've been talking about the use of psychedelics in macro doses, doses that lead to powerful and transformative experiences. But you've also likely heard about microdosing, which has become just as, if not more, popular of late, especially in Silicon Valley. When people microdose with psilocybin or other psychedelic drugs, they take sub-perceptual doses, doses with no immediate subjective change to conscious experience, like taking a vitamin supplement. There's a growing body of evidence that microdosing can have lasting positive mental health effects, like countering depression and stimulating creativity. Stamets and his team have been conducting research in this area. I think microdosing has the potential to be beneficial for everyone as they age. We are heavily researched. We put a lot of resources. I have seven scientists working full-time, and we are finding profound neurogenic benefits, Hmm. upregulating the growth of nerves. We have submitted a paper to Nature under peer review based on an app that Dr. Pam and I have been instrumental in designing. That's at microdose.me. And it's basically a survey of microdosers on what they're using, how often they're using, your age, your, your sex, other substances you're taking. And it has these challenge tests. Uh, it has memory tests. It has visual acuity. It has hearing. And it has all these different standardized tests to measure mental health and also depression, anxiety, mood. And we have another paper that we're writing now on the results. And we have found something that's absolutely unambiguously cannot be attributed to a placebo. Hmm. As you get older, you're not as coordinated. 
And so we focused in on the tap test. The tap test is either your forefinger and your thumb coming together or double tap of two fingers like on a table or on a pad. And it's a standardized test for Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, traumatic brain injury, Hmm. and also for just neurodegeneration. Hmm. When you're younger, you can tap really, really fast. When you're 80 years of age, you can't tap as fast. Interesting. I'm just like testing it right now. (laughs) (laughs) We looked at the 55 age and plus group subset, and lo and behold, the people that were microdosing with psilocybin statistically significant increase after 30 days in their frequency of doing the tap test. This cannot be related to a placebo. It's a neurophysiological consequence. And to see that and compare it to the people that are not microdosing, who baselined or slightly declined, when microdosing with psilocybin, they increased. But when they stacked it with niacin and lion's mane, there was a massive increase in the frequency of the tap test. Interesting. That speaks to neurophysiological benefit and the fact that your neurophysiology is fundamentally improving Hmm. because the nerve signal from your brain to your fingers has now been augmented. I think it's a breakthrough in medicine. Wow. Because your basic neurological health affects everything you do. Right. One thing that we noticed when we read Mycelium Running is you mentioned how, in terms of psilocybes, you said, I don't recommend this mushroom for use for everyone. I I recommend it for certain kinds of people in certain contexts, but not for everyone, not for general use. Do you still stand by that position, or do you think that the general public could benefit with the right kind of cultural or institutional support? That's a great question, Amanda, and no one's ever asked me that question, so I think it's really important that I clarify that. During the 1970s and 80s and 90s, even early 2000s, you know, when I first went to the TED conferences, they told me, don't you dare talk about magic mushrooms. Hmm. Don't you dare. Yeah, it warned me. <laughs> it was taboo. Wow. It's a political hot potato, let me tell you, within the TED community. But I, out of an abundance of caution... I didn't want the people to use my book to have bad experiences and then for these to be politicized hmm. and harm the movement. So I don't make recommendations. You know, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not a therapist. I have a mantra that I've followed strictly. Nature provides, I don't, hmm. with psilocybin mushrooms. When I had my DEA license, I thought constantly that half the people approaching me were DEA agents. And now this last year, they want to be on being on main stage talking about psilocybin mushrooms. Yeah, really. I have a lot to say about that. You should say it there on the main stage. <laughs> I will. I think there's 65 clinical studies with psilocybin approved by the FDA showing the benefits of psilocybin. So this is a fundamental sea change in the scientific and the government's recognizing that psilocybin makes better citizens, Hmm. resolves trauma. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking forward to using psilocybin to deal with my own past trauma, but I'm also thinking about how there could be great societal impacts and how what even drives people to commit crimes. Well, a lot of time it's trauma and unresolved neglect and abuse and how these could be medicines to help people who are in vulnerable positions grapple with the existential crisis of being a human being and how they interact with other human beings in society. I have a family member who has been in prison and had been jailed a few times. And 
the trauma, and you know this and particularly true, Amanda, it's just not your trauma. It's your immediate family's trauma. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's your parents, your brothers, your sisters. It's your relatives. It's your neighbors to your parents. Yeah. Right? It emanates out through society. And so then it's not only the victim, but the person who is accused. And so both sides of that relationship have trauma that emanates out through their communities. Well, the opposite happens with psilocybin. Mm. So the pebble that's thrown into the pond of goodness from psilocybin emanates out to your family, mm. emanates out to your neighbors, to your neighborhood. The idea of reciprocal love, and this is something also that the clinical studies have shown, the shared benefits of psilocybin statistically is associated with a reduction of crime, a reduction of larceny, burglary, violent crime, partner-to-partner violence, makes people pro-environmental, more cooperative, more compassionate, nicer. This is really a game-changing medicine for the benefit of society. We look to the day where these medicines have become more widely available. Measure 109 has become law last year. California just passed. New York State, Washington, D.C., 76% of the citizens voted for the decriminalization of psychedelics. Wow. Any politician out there, pay attention. And this is not a left versus right thing. So many of these protagonists for these medicines are conservatives Hmm. because they have seen the PTSD from their sons and daughters coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq. And the transformative benefits from one dose of psychedelics has done more than years of other conventional therapies. So this is a breakthrough medicine. It's been described by the FDA to qualify as a breakthrough medicine. Hmm. Hmm. I think psilocybin mushrooms make for nicer people, more law-abiding people. Hmm. Yeah. That's the irony of it. They're anti-addictive. <laughs> people who haven't done psilocybin mushrooms, it's, it's so different than any other drug because the next day after you do them, you don't want to do it. I look at psilocybin mushrooms, but there's no yeah. way I want to touch them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm done for a year. So they're anti-addictive by their nature. So skeptics become educated on this subject, do their reading. This is serious science. And I'm, my biggest concern is it popularized to the point it's hijacked that we don't have the guardrails in place to prevent accidents or the media exacerbating a problem and making a mountain out of a molehill, which they can do because they get more page views, they sell more newspapers, et cetera. So it's really important that the community comes together to protect us from the commons and doing this within, I think, fairly well-defined guidelines, which are being constructed today. Great. Maybe our last question here is, given the transformative potential for this on the human psyche and opening your heart and connecting you more deeply with the unity of all life and nature. Do you think that the evolution of this mushroom and its ability to affect human consciousness in that way is an accident? Or do you think it's something else? I don't know if our tiny, puny little minds can comprehend the wisdom of the universe. Hmm. Some people call it God. You can put whatever name you want on it. But can we possibly comprehend the story in which we are living? I don't know the answer to that. My gut tells me no. There's so amazing forces. It makes me feel better about my own death. Mm. We're all going to die. Do we want to die with optimism and hope and courage and gratitude? But that's what psilocybin mushrooms do, especially at the end of life, mm. which is one of the best arguments for their use. They'll be able to write to try. Yeah, This is something that we all will face. And I am enormously thankful that I'm in this position at this time 
to be one voice, hopefully, in leading the charge so we can maximally benefit from this. And I'm not the only one by any means. I'm using the knowledge and the wisdom of generations before me. But I think we're at a paradigm shifting point in the evolution of our society that benefits people, the government, everyone. And that we so need it today. You can listen to experts like Paul Stamets. You can binge podcasts like this one. You can look at the data and read subjective accounts of the powerful transformations people have had from psilocybin. But all that can't really tell you what it's like to lose yourself in that strange landscape of mind. The only way to really know what it's like to exist without yourself, to be aware but without an ego, is by going through the looking glass. Next time, in the final installment of our mini-series, Chris takes five dried grams of psilocybe mushrooms. In the meantime, get lost with us. Find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox. At Man Under Bridge. And please, spread the spores of labyrinths. Post, tweet, tag, leave a review. Help us colonize this media ecosystem so we can keep getting lost with you on into the future. This episode was written, edited, and sound designed by us with theme music by Josh Budo Karp. In the Labyrinth's podcast system, the listener is serenaded by two separate but equally important hosts, Amanda Knox, who brings authenticity and empathy and Christopher Robinson, who brings intellectual curiosity. These are their stories. What do you think, Knox? Looks like a podcast junkie shot up with one too many ads. Should have become a patron from the looks of it. Who wouldn't prefer ad-free episodes and signed books and live video hangouts over overdosing on ads in an alleyway? Don't patronize me, Knox. Leave that to the listener. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson.